Welcome to this episode of Let's Make This More Interesting from Eat Big Fish, a podcast for the times when you can't afford to bore your audience. And one of the ambitions of this project right from the beginning was to try and make dull a bit more tangible. We started doing that in the collaboration with Peter Field that we discussed in episode one by putting a specific cost on being dull. And we found that surprisingly powerful as an idea. It's been getting a lot of traction since we first aired it. And one of the other ways to make dull more tangible, surely, would be to dimensionalize dull a bit more. Lay it out on the surgeon's table and take it apart. If we stopped thinking of dull as an amorphous vanilla blob, but were clear on its constituent parts, then we'd find it easier to separate out the different causes for dullness and understand what skills we needed to overcome each of them. So I've been looking back over the different guests and the research, and there seem to be four different reasons something can be dull, in their words. I'm really fond of George Box's observation that all models are wrong, but some are useful. And this may be the same, but let's, let's try it and see. Even if it's not quite right yet, it can still be useful to us. So what I'm hearing is that there are four reasons something can be dull, as I say. The first two are to do with the subject, and the second are to do with the style. Let's start with the subject. For the first of them, let's think back to Addison Brown, the science teacher teaching covalent bonding or forces to 12-year-olds. What did he say? Only 30% of the class are naturally interested in the topic he's teaching. So the first reason something can be dull is that it's a subject they don't think they care about. So the solution is relatability. Find an early way to connect the subject with them on their terms. What does he do when he's teaching forces? He shows a photograph of his dog with his dog's head out the window as they're driving along and the dog's ears are going in one direction, the tongue's going in another direction, his jowl's going in another direction. He says, kids, what's going on here? And so he's into forces in a way that they can understand and think they're interested in. Relatability. And actually this one is more relevant to us in the brand and marketing and business world than we might think. Because our consumers in reality don't care as much about our category or indeed our brand as we might like to believe. Relatability, meeting them where they are, is a really important idea for us. Almost a foundation for everything else. The second reason we said that a subject can be dull is familiarity. It's because it's something that they think they already know all about. Remember the sociologist Murray S. Davis's view that theories that really enter culture are not the ones that are just true, but the ones that run counter to what the audience's expectations or assumptions are. And the solution here, as Davis indicates, lies in subverting expectations, which is how most humor works, of course, but also the solution to this reason that something is dull. Subvert expectations be surprising. So, as an example here, I am being bombarded at the moment by messages from something called the Zoe app on Instagram. The Zoe app in the UK is essentially a kind of a food app that allows you to kind of understand how to customize the right foods for your body as opposed to anybody else. How does it promote itself? Because it tells me why almost everything we've been told about food is wrong. Why almost everything we've been told about food is wrong. I thought I knew about food. I'd reached a certain age. I had some expectations. I had some assumptions about what is right and wrong for me. No, it says those are wrong. That's why you need us. So the first two reasons for dullness is that it's either a subject they don't think they care about, or it's a subject they think they already know all about. The third and fourth reasons our interviewees thought something could be dull were to do with style. 
And the third of these is the topic being presented in the same way as everybody else. So think of Maz Farrelly in the second episode, the reality TV show producer who'd been through, what was it? Thousands, tens of thousands of, of interviews, casting interviews for shows, to the point where she'd started putting up signs in the waiting area saying, if you want to be successful, if you want to be cast, don't say these things. Don't say, I'm a people person. Don't say, this is the most important day of my life. Don't say, I'm in this to win this. Because if you say those things, everybody else is saying them, you're not going to be interesting. You're not going to stand out. So the solution here is distinctivity. And the final reason something might be dull, even if you can relate to it, and even if it's unfamiliar, is that it's presented in too rational and uninvolving a way. And Peter Field talks to this in his and Les Binet's seminal analysis of marketing effectiveness, the power of evoking emotion. So did Arlene, talking about Aristotle and pathos, the power of evoking emotion. And a key solution here is drama. Think about Gemma Parkinson presenting at the Moat Hennessy Conference in Arles and storytelling, the speciality of today's guest. One of the reasons I've been leaving storytelling till relatively late in the series is because I think that in marketing and business, sometimes the notion of story is the default answer to how to make anything dull interesting. And what I wanted to allow through the interviews to emerge are the different reasons for dull and see where story did and didn't fit. But obviously now we do come to explore it and its obvious importance and power, we want to learn from a real master. And today's guest is just that. John York is one of the world's leading experts on story and storytelling. He's developed his understanding of how to create a really compelling story during a remarkable career in the television business. He was head of Channel 4 Drama, controller of BBC Drama Production, and MD of Company Pictures, working on and producing some of the world's most lucrative, widely viewed, and critically acclaimed TV drama, from EastEnders to Shameless, Life on Mars, and Wolf Hall. John founded the hugely successful BBC Studio Writers Academy. He's trained some of the most successful and prolific screenwriters working today who've gone on to write their own shows, including The Crown, Killing Eve and Doctor Who. His awards include Golden Globes and BAFTAs. And he now has his own business, John York Story, helping everybody from games developers to businesses tell their own stories better. And today we're going to focus on the key themes of compelling story laid out in his book, a book I can really recommend. It's called Into the Woods, How Stories Work and Why We Tell Them, and it has swiftly become one of the defining works in the area. Let's meet John. John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I must say that before I read your book, like I suspect many readers of it, I thought I knew a little bit about storytelling, only to realize quite soon I knew very little at all. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a wonderful book. And it's just it, it's fantastically eclectic group of examples. I mean, you really, it, you've kind of got all human kind of cultural history in here, really. <laughs> well, I had a very misspent youth. And then I um then I spent a lot of time trying to catch up academically, and then ah, I worked okay. out actually you could probably marry the two, <laughs> you know. So I watched and read a lot of rubbish when I was growing up, frankly. <laughs> but it turned out to be quite useful. You found a place for it on page twenty-five. Absolutely. One of the things I love about the book is that you sometimes hear story and and telling of stories presented as almost a sort of a decorative rearranging of of narrative, as if it's kind of ornamental, if you like. And one of your points at the heart of the book is no, it's, it's fundamental. You know, we, we crave stories. You talk about we crave your stories. And we need to make sense and put order around our lives and stories a way of doing it. Can you talk a little bit about that to start us off? I think we are 
pattern-seeking animals. Without order, we go mad. Well, the example I, I, I give, and I think hopefully is the best, is you know, Sartre's book Nausea. He talks about raw naked existence being absolutely unbearable. If it's unmediated, it's just overwhelming because it's too big and too vast and we are too small and too puny to, to cope with that. So what we do to make the world safe is we lash it with story. We wrap the world with a narrative that explains it to us and that makes it safe. And of course, that's a really good definition of mythology. It's a really good definition of religion. They're not literal truths. They're metaphorical truths. I love the fact, uh, the story of Prometheus alone is just going like, but that's so beautiful and brilliant. You know, it's not true, but it's true. You know, it's that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and, and presumably one of the fascinating things today is that that craving for stories, because we are surrounded by and fed more stories than at any other time in human existence, really. And yet we keep on craving. It's a craving that's never satisfied from that point of view. Yeah, I mean, it, we, we are at a particular juncture in human history and human development, which, which I think is quite worrying in some ways because the means of production and dissemination of stories have never been so democratic. And that should be a cause for celebration, but worryingly, it's actually a cause for a breakdown of, of shared epistemology, you know, where nobody can has the same idea of what the world is. And so the, you know, your worldview becomes tribal. And to an extent, that was mediated by, you know, publishers having to follow libel laws, and it was mediated by the fairness doctrine in the United States. I mean, none of these were perfect, but there was a general agreement on what objective reality pretty much was and that's quickly disappearing um as populist politicians in particular rush to embrace you know the power of fake news yes so i think that, you know that's the you know stories are organs that are fantastically useful but they're also incredibly dangerous yes and i'm really interested in that and how actually well, one might call bad actors actually a, a fantastically good storytellers, but let's yeah. let's leave that let's leave that for the end. Um, yeah, so cheer ourselves up and end on exactly, that exactly. Um, <laughs> so, one of the points that you make very compellingly, obviously, is that there's a kind of universal shape as you talk about uh, stories, and actually that throughout you you kind of look at people who've kind of suggested no, there isn't a universal shape. There's, you know, there are different kinds of shape. No, no, no. You say there is one universal shape. Give us an outline of what that universal shape is, and perhaps why it needs to be like that. Okay, well. The easiest way of describing that is you, a story is a question. Fundamentally, a story is a question and an answer, dramatised. And the, the story is you know, how you join the gap between the two. The question is normally what we call in screenwriting the inciting incident. You know, the something happened. You know, Alice fell down a rabbit hole. It's like, oh my God, chaos. I need to restore order. The rest of the story is the search for order. So the exciting incident is the question. There's two other elements. Um, there's the midpoint and the crisis. The crisis is the worst possible consequence of the decision the character takes at the inciting incident because what the character is doing is saying, well, if I accept the lesson I've learned, you know, what would it cost me to accept that? The midpoint of the story is 
central to everything, literally and metaphorically. Um, the midpoint of the story is at the beginning, a character knows nothing. At the middle of the story, they encounter a truth. The second half of the story is the testing of that truth to destruction. And the crisis point is the decision whether to accept that truth or not. So you find that, that kind of, just like a triangle, basically. It's quite a good way to think of it. So, you know, I mean, I use the example of the Godfather only because it's, it's, it's well known. It's like Michael uh, is a law-abiding soldier. Exactly halfway through the Godfather, um, he kills Solotson McCloskey. So he, be, he goes into the dark world. And the second half of the film is him road testing that lesson to destruction. What does it mean? What are the consequences of this? And the crisis point, which is really when his father dies, is almost always a moment of death of some kind, is do I accept that lesson? Uh, and of course, the answer is normally yes. And he becomes the opposite of what he was at the beginning. Now, if that sounds highfalutin, it's actually incredibly close, if not identical, to the scientific method. You know, the midpoint is kind of, you have a problem, you develop a hypothesis, you then test that hypothesis to destruction, and if it survives that, the worst possible consequence of the test, you accept it as your new truth. And I think that's quite a good way of looking at it. It is pretty much an approximation of the, of the scientific method. And, and as such, because the consequences are usually accepted, I think you know one of your key points is that Stories are about essentially about learning and change yeah. at their heart. Yeah, are they units of knowledge, fundamentally? Right. Okay. Okay. Play that out a bit more. So units of knowledge that are sort of transferable and stickier because they are stories. Yeah, I mean the whole the, the reason it's told in a story is because it's the most powerful way of transmitting anything, uh, mostly because a story appeals to emotion rather than reason. One of the problems we're in nowadays is stories were designed to disseminate the way. They do, you know, they're, they're tribal mechanisms, you know, and, and so you tell a glorious story about chariots carrying Phoebus, carrying the sun in his chariot, and, and that becomes a, a tribal story, just as you create stories about, you know, that mammoth over there is particularly dangerous or whatever. <laughs> and, you know, like you, you want to pass that on in a, in a way that is memorable and will aid the survival of the tribe. No, and so it's, yeah. it's it's fundamentally that you know they're viral mechanisms because they are inherently emotional. They are designed to produce not a rational response but a hormonal response to create awe or fear or joy. You know, they're drugging you effectively. That's fascinating. A hormonal response rather than simply emotional. Has work been done on that? I mean, is there science around the, the hormonal effects of that? There, there is. I mean, there's, there's some pretty basic stuff on empathy. And there's two or three people working. The one I know best is Christian Kaisers in Amsterdam, who basically, I think he was one of the first people to show, you know, talk about mirror neurons. And, you know, that when you're involved in a story, your brainwaves start to behave as if you're physically experiencing the story. So tell us, I mean, I, I, I know this is a bit simplistic for you, <laughs> but tell us the key, the key elements of a compelling story. I mean, what are the five, six, seven key elements of a compelling story? The structure is incredibly important. You know, the structure of a story is, um, you know, if the content is the weapon, the structure is the weapons delivery system. And the most potent structure 
is binary. It's really simple binary. Is everything is built out of opposites, and it's also incredibly symmetrical. You know, these are units of order. You know, probably the best-selling children's story of all time, but given the amount of time it's been on the market, is the Gruffalo because it's totally and utterly symmetrical. I mean, it's the perfect story in in many ways. You know, that, you know how does the mouse get the nut? He gets it by defeating the Gruffalo in a completely symmetrical tale. So those elements are important, but also, you know, it's what drives you through the story, which is intrigue. The story is driven by asking questions and not answering them. So it's the deferral of gratification is incredibly important. So you ask a question and you defer the gratification of the answer. But but let's get into some of the elements. So tell us a little bit about the protagonist and the antagonist. So you, you have a, a lovely quote from Hitchcock who says about the antagonist, the, the more successful the villain, the more successful the picture. So tell us a little about those two and, and how to make them more compelling. You know, again, story relies on an emotional response. What a good antagonist does is it incites fear or antipathy or awe. You know, those are the emotions you want to create because then you will want that thing defeated and you want to make that battle as hard as possible so you want to make the villain as devious and ingenious as possible yeah and the classic way of articulating the antagonist is they are they are an embodiment of the protagonist's worst fear fabulous and then okay so then tell us a little bit about desire you talk a lot about how desire is at the heart of the kind of protagonist and drives the story along why is that so important and what kind of effect does it have on the narrative it's it's fascinating in in movies and in television and in theater you have to have an active protagonist so they have to be pursuing something and therefore they they have a want we call it in screenwriting it's it's a want uh, and if they don't want anything, then they're dead, effectively. And it's the same. It's the same with you. Know, like it's a, the classic definition of depression is absence of desire. So you know they they have to have a goal, which you the audience share, particularly in popular storytelling. Chris McQuarrie, who um, directed all the best Mission Impossible films and wrote The Usual Suspects. You know, he was asked, you know, what's the most important element of characterization? And quick as a flash, he just said, do, do the audience, forgive my language, do the audience give a shit about what the character wants? Okay, so it can be as simplistic as that. So I was going to say, yeah. Tom Cruise doesn't seem to be a terribly textured character in the Mission Impossible films, but that's, that's, texture isn't impossible. It's just a driving desire that, that takes them towards the... Okay. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, in some ways, that's probably a problem with those films because, I mean, yeah, I love them, but you, know, like, you always know he's going to get away with it. The ones where you don't know <laughs> or whether the, the protagonist is so wildly unsuited to their <laughs> dilemma tend to be more emotionally powerful. Yeah. And I think that's why the reliance on ever more amazing stunts comes from it's a substitute for that problem okay so you, you've got the um the kind of a very clear want with the protagonist you've got an antagonist who kind of uh, arouses strong emotions of fear and awe so what else is important so we've got the structure what else is important in this to make it really engaging and compelling uh, empathy is the the other key thing the trite version of empathy is you know, do I like them? But that's a really bad definition of empathy. You know, it's not about liking. It, you know, empathy is the quote from um, To Kill a Mockingbird, you know, to walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. It's, it's, it's that, you know, for, when a story works, 
the protagonist becomes your avatar in the story. Yeah, you know, yeah, and, and a great story really is. I think yeah, the best definition of a story is kind of it's a transcendent reality. You, know, you forget the world around you. You are so wrapped up. You you know, you transcend into the film and you become the protagonist effectively. So that's what you're looking for in in most stories. Um, and that isn't necessarily because the character is nice. It's because they're embody something you at some level you want to be a part of or have. So yeah, you know, I mean, you know, it's it's fascinating how many stories are about revenge. Um so you know, it's not it's not about nice emotions. It's about you know, emotions that purge your feelings in some way. So the the stakes and elevating the stakes is one way of increasing that empathy, presumably. Yeah, I mean I think it is if you don't achieve your goal, you will lose this. You know, your wife will die or whatever, or you'll lose your mortgage or, you know, it just, it ups the emotional content, you know, and, and again, that's what you're looking for all the time is, is you want to flood the viewer, listener, reader with hormones. Um, and, and it just does that. So, 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 I mean, I always remember talking to Jed Mercurio about this, you know, he, he was the kind of master of this. And he just said, you know, why would you not have stakes? You know, like what? What purpose is not having the state? <laughs> so that was very good. So, so this uh, this is fascinating. So you now clearly your canvas is very broad, right? I mean, you've obviously done a lot of work in television. You work in film. You work in game uh, design, as I understand a it. Bit, yeah. And 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 presumably other kinds of formats in business and stuff as well. What's True. the what are the most common mistakes that you see? Why when people bring a story to you that is for some reason too dull? What are the most common reasons why? It is too dull. Uh, uh, some of it's quite obvious, you know. And yeah, the thing that kills attention is is repetition. Is is the most important thing. You know, like you know, like every. It's a bit like scrolling through Twitter or Facebook, you know. Like every post has to give you new information and has to stimulate you in some way. And if that stops, you know, if you read four tweets saying the same thing, then you start to lose interest. You, you know, you don't get that hormonal stimulus. Sometimes it's the protagonists are passive. That's a quite a common mistake as well. So it tends to be those things, you know. And, and I think, you know, it's a it's a problem. I see, see quite a bit on television as well at the moment, which is, you know, the... Sounds silly, but the absence of joy, I think, is, is is more important than we sometimes give it credit for. What stories at some level do, it doesn't mean they have to be happy, but they should be a kind of joyous, if not transcendental, experience. And, okay, great. So, so too much repetition, so they're saying the same thing, the same the expected thing. Passive protagonist, absence of joy. Intrigue as well. The absence of intrigue. Intrigue, yeah, okay. Absence of intrigue, yeah. I think Ian Foster said, I think it's in Into the Woods, actually, like, um, yeah, the only important thing is what happens next. And so if you're not, every sentence has got to make you ask a question. And so you have to read the next sentence. And that, that's the real trick of it. Right. Um, and so so character, we haven't talked much about characters other than the, the antagonist and protagonist. If you are, for instance, given a, a script that's got a character that just is not very engaging, what ways do you think about about to kind of, you know, increase the interest level in that character, for instance? Well, there are, there are various tricks you can 
use. The, the two that I always go to first, which is slightly shameless, but but I, I will share them anyway. Is is like you know, I sort of mentioned, which is the first is you know, what are they what are they most scared of? You know, right? Okay. Find their biggest fear, yeah, and then drive them towards that. And, you know, that should immediately bring your character alive because it makes them change. And you know, what you're looking for in a character is internal change. Right. Okay. You know, yeah. Three-dimensional characters, ideally. Yeah. 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 It's one of the reasons why you know James Bond and and and, and Tom Cruise are you know um, are only so rewarding in the end because there's no real internal change. Yes. That's really key. Internal conflict is what you're after, and actually Mission Impossible does give you some of that. I think sometimes. Um, but the second trick is um, I'm always fascinated by the comedian Harold Lloyd. You know. Um, Simon I do the reading. physical, yeah, the clock, yeah, the clock, yeah. That's yeah, and and he was for years a Chaplin impersonator. Who oh, really? Um, yeah, he played a character. I think Lonesome Luke, and if you look up the pictures, I mean, it is literally how a Chaplin could sue, right. you know. And then one day, um, he he said, "I need a trademark." You know, he looked at Keaton, he looked at Chaplin, he saw the hat and the deadpan face, and he saw the bowler hat and the cane, and and then he reached out and he got a pair of horn rim glasses and then be- became the richest man in Hollywood <laughs> at that time, <laughs> the biggest landowner in Hollywood within 10 years. And, I, and, and, and so it's, it's, a, you know, it's a shorthand for distinctiveness. I'm not saying give your character glasses. That would be a ridiculous lesson. But distinctiveness is really part of it. And I think you know, the way to do that is the Dickensian lesson is, is you take something and you exaggerate it. Right. You know, and I think, yeah, you know, that's why so many Dickens characters live so many years after they're written is because they're cartoon. They're, it's a kind of cartoon exaggeration to them, you know, which I think is kind of glorious. So you take one thing and you exaggerate it. You know, you know I mean, I always used to say, can you draw them? You know, can you draw a cartoon with them now? Or, or if you were a, an impersonator, how would you impersonate them? Mm. You know, it's like Doc Cotton and EastEnders. Like, it's <laughs> perfect. I mean, there's other things as well, but I think you know, like, yeah, like you, you want that. I think every great character has a hint of sadness right. within them as well. It's like there's something flawed about all great characters, I think, at their heart. Yeah. Well, I know I, I loved your point about Dickens because actually even the names are very often evocative of that exaggeration. Oh, yeah. That novel determinism is brilliant. It's great. Yeah. He's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> And you talk a lot about sort of surprise and the subversion of expectations. Hmm. Where, where does that come in and what does it apply to? Is that just to do with the plot? Is it to do with your expectations about the protagonist? What's the most successful way to kind of surprise people within that? Oh, no, that's a very good question. I mean, it goes all the way back to the ancient Greeks and, and, and they had a word for it, which I would, I'm never sure if my pronunciation is correct, peripatia. Uh, which means reversal, you know, reversal in the fortune, which is followed by adenoresis, which means learning. So something twists, which makes you go, oh, my God. Oh, of course. <laughs> right. You know, and it's that emotion which is fundamental to good storytelling. Because, again, it's, it, it knocks down your defences and floods you with hormones and changes the way you perceive things you know it's like i mean people sometimes dismiss it as a gimmick but it's absolutely central to to drama i think you know it's like you know he's like oedipus yeah. you know like 
oh my god it's your mum and your dad <laughs> you know it's like it's the ending of planet of the apes isn't it it's all of those uh things the twist in sixth sense or the others those yes it's brilliant but frank cottrell boyce talked about it because he wrote the two um or, or co-wrote the two um queen elizabeth the james bond one and the paddington one and he and he's, he wrote about it it's a slightly muted approach, but he said that moment in both of them where you know you follow James Bond or Paddington in, and the moment the Queen turns round and it's her, it's like oh my god, <laughs> and then oh of course, and like and it floods you with dopamine. Not everybody. I mean, those you hate the monarchy, it's just going to make you angry. Flood you with cortisol, uh, and and at that moment i mean frank talks about it as you know, maybe you realize at that moment that you had feelings of patriotism that you would never admitted to before right you know so it disarms you yeah and the, you know it's an extraordinarily powerful agent is the subversion of expectation you know i mean it's incredibly important i love that and tell me about the o of course bit because the o of course is slightly counterintuitive isn't it because is it like, like i should have seen that coming or what is the O, of course, in that? Well, it's the misdirection, isn't it? I mean, the, 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 you know, I mean Agatha Christie is the, the classic example. Oh, of course it was them. And of course it was all of them. So that's what you're looking for. I mean, you know, it's hard. It's really hard to do. I mean, David Mamet said, you know, plot is so hard that most writers pretend it's beneath them. No, <laughs> uh, because it's just really difficult. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, my favourite, and it's really simple, is if you know the, the Nicole Kidman film, The Others, they're haunted, and over the end you go, oh, my God, they're the ghosts. Oh, of course. It's so simple. Yes, that is and a great beautiful. example. It's beautiful. Uh, or, oh, my God, of course they're on Earth. You know, it's that, and, and um, we underestimate its effects. And again, I, th I think, keep going back to this, is like, I think you know, the more literary we get, the more suspicious we become of these devices. You know, the more suspicious we become of comedy or enjoyment or transcendence, when actually they are the most important things. Tell us about business. Tell us about storytelling in business, because I know that you help businesses get better at storytelling. What are the most common mistakes you see businesses make about storytelling? I'll tell you, the, the one that I find most annoying, um, and it may just be because it's over, so overdone, is them telling you it's a story. Yeah, this is our story. Oh, to read right. our story. And I kind of think, like, but yeah, the most powerful stories are the invisible ones. So don't tell us you're in a story because all you're doing is diminishing. And so... You know, but yeah, a lot of stories are are kind of like pretty tepid attempts at origin myths. So, you know, they're normally origin myths of, of some description. Yeah, you know, and you're looking for the ones that are inspiring and make you smile. And and again, you're looking for oh, of course, you know. And yeah, so an example of that would be Innocent Drinks is a, is a is a good one. I think it's still on the website. What's the last time I looked? Which is three guys from university like nothing better than to get together in the evening and press soft fruit. <laughs> I'm not sure how true this is, but they started selling them at festivals and it was more successful than they thought. And they thought, but, you know, we're not supposed to do this. We've, we've been to universities, become scientists or whatever. And so they decided to, Glastonbury or somewhere, to put two rubbish bins on either side of the ice, the converted ice cream van they used to sell their smoothies. 
and one bin said, put your empties in here if you think we should do this for a living and put your empties in here if you think we should give it up and get a day job. And of course, the first bin was full. They decided to go full time and Innocent Drinks was born. And yeah, that photo of the three of them smiling cheerfully in a festival, holding their drinks aloft. Yeah, it's incredibly persuasive and touching. It knows its audience incredibly well. Nowhere does it mention that years ago they sold the company to Coca-Cola and it's worth $247 billion. They don't have anything to do with it whatsoever. Right, right. You know, yep. it's it's not it's not about that. It's about that simple emotional to responsive. Like, oh, they're like me. Right. They're like me. Yes, you know? that's nice. And, and, yeah, yeah, that's and, nice. And that also embodies the festival ethos of those kind of products and do you do you think that anybody can get better at telling stories i mean is, is it like comedy where some people are funny and some people aren't are some people naturally good storytellers and some people are not or actually can we all improve our ability to tell stories by just remembering and understanding some of the basic precepts that you're talking about you know it's such a good question because i think it's innate i think fundamentally the, the base it has to be innate it's a mechanism for human survival so that has to be there. And I, I think where it goes wrong is if you're just following a formula, you know, that you can have the best structured story in the world, but it won't work unless it's built from a passion, you know, or a conflict. You know, stories tend to be conflict resolution bottles. So if it comes from an innate conflict, then, you know, that's, that's great. Wonderful. Um, let's just close by asking you very unkindly um, your three <laughs> your three bits of advice. So what three bits of advice would you give to somebody who wanted to create a more engaging story? First of all, you have to love the central character, you know, and it doesn't mean like, it means they embody some desire in you that you want to pass on to the world. And the story will only be as good as the antagonist you've devised because it's the thing in the world that you most want to see defeated and then in the gap between those two the third thing is like you know make the journey as impossible as possible and then you know find out clever ways you know that's where the plotting comes in is clever ways to go oh my god of course they could do that all the time the, the other thing is practice you know, endlessly practice. It's like a musical instrument. Tell stories every day. That, that it's extraordinarily powerful. Uh, extraordinarily useful in realising over time. I mean, I do a lot of work teaching people how to do long form narrative. And once you've done it with them once, and they've practised it a couple of times, they they, they never ask you back. Which might, <laughs> might be because you're rubbish. But I think it's because they get they get it. Those simple rules are the useful as long as you understand that you're. It's not a formula. You know, it's a checklist. Uh, you know, there's no great story without passion and joy, I, I think. Stories are in enormously powerful. You know, they, they are forces of nature. I mean, in Yuval Noah Harari's book, Sapiens, uh, you know, he says, you know, like, you know, the, the biggest group of cooperative animals before humans is chimpanzees. And those groups never get beyond 12 individuals. What allows human beings more than anything else to succeed and dominate the planet is their ability to motivate hundreds of thousands of people towards the same goal. And that's entirely done through storytelling. You know, that's its power. You know, it is atomic bomb-sized power. John, that was wonderful. Thank you very much indeed. No, thank you so much for having me. 
Like you, I suspect, I knew a certain amount about storytelling before coming into this episode. If you're as interested as I am about challenges, for instance, it's natural to have spent quite a lot of time thinking about different types of conflict and how they help a business's narrative become more interesting. So, for example, I had the good fortune to interview Kurt Kane, then CMO of the US hamburger chain Wendy's a couple of years ago. Wendy's at the time were making waves on social media around their own fresh, never frozen claim by calling out McDonald's use of frozen burgers, which Wendy's never used. And so I asked Kurt about what the strategic value was to him in leaning into conflict. Look, he said, we've been saying we use fresh, never frozen beef for a long time, ever since we launched in 1969, but people just haven't been hearing it because it's always been bundled in part of another message. So we got laser focused on it and we created conflict around it. And the conflict got us attention on the thing that makes us different that nobody had been paying any attention to because, he said, without the conflict for us, there isn't an interesting story. And while conflict was very much a presence in this interview, for those of us that want to overcome that fourth kind of dull we talked about at the beginning when a subject is presented in too rational and uninvolving a way, what's a lot more there was to think about in what John had to say? First of all, his point that stories are all about learning and change. And so for any of us involved in that kind of work, and surely that is most types of business, as well as frankly any curious person, redeveloping our skills in this is going to be very important to our success. Then, that stories are the most powerful way of transmitting anything, really, because they appeal to emotion, not reason. And remember Arlene talking about Aristotle's emphasis on pathos, emotion, in compelling rhetoric. And they help us elicit, at best, not simply an emotional response, but a hormonal response. And if we ever come back for season two, by the way, I'd love to talk to that person researching mirror neurons. What a fascinating idea that was. And so the keys to a great story, John said, structure. We need to be a little more deliberate about using that universal structure. Intrigue, the deferral of gratification, set something up and then not answer it right away. Keep people waiting. An antagonist, a really good antagonist. The more successful the villain, the more successful the picture, in Hitchcock's words. Not unlike the value of the colourful characters that we started to explore in the conversation with Gemma. Desire. We heard about this with Norman and Sesame Street, didn't we? Desire is what makes the protagonist active. They have to really want something. If they don't want something, they're not moving the story along, and pretty soon you don't really have a story at all. That's what dull looks like in this world. Empathy. You've got to like them. And in fact, I've got a screenwriting friend who says, as a kind of creator of a story, you have to like all of your characters, even the villains. It makes them more engaging. It has to be built from passion or conflict. Otherwise, it's just following a formula. There has to be jeopardy, of course, high stakes, consequences of failure. And the title of this podcast, Let's Make This More Interesting, refers, of course, to the cliché that the bored villain says in raising the gambling stakes on the hero in a Western or gangster B-movie. And finally, the subversion of expectations or misdirection, the power of leading the audience in one direction and then revealing the twist. The good news, John felt, was that storytelling was an innate part of being human. We just need to be a bit more deliberate about the ingredients, he says, and endlessly, endlessly practice. And let me leave you with one last thought about the cost of dull that's hidden in there. 
It's around a concept that Daniel Kahneman talks about in Thinking Fast and Slow, called associative coherence. Because as human beings we find randomness difficult and can't help but create an apparently coherent story out of different bits of information in front of us, there isn't a strong narrative presented to us by an individual or a business about themselves, we'll tend to create our own story about them. So, for instance, let's say I tell you three bits of information. I nearly missed this podcast recording. I couldn't find the cat when I woke up this morning. and My wife is away. All those three bits of information are true, but there is in reality no connection between them. Yet your mind will naturally start making a narrative connection between those three bits. So, Adam nearly missed the podcast. He couldn't find the cat when he woke up. His wife is away. Hmm, you start to think. I think I see what's going on here. Presumably, when his half goes away, he lets things get away from him a little bit. He's a bit hopeless without her. And maybe he's terrified of what she'll say when she comes back and find that the cat is gone. Perhaps it's her cat rather than his. No wonder he was almost late. In fact, stop recording now, Adam. Go and find the wretched cat. Who is called Romy, by the way. You see, associative coherence. Creating an apparently coherent narrative out of what are in reality disconnected pieces of information. What's the point of this? If we aren't putting a clear, really interesting narrative in front of people, interesting enough to make them absorb it and take it as the narrative that's actually the case, and take them along with who we are and what that narrative is, they will construct their own narrative about us. And so the cost of being dull in telling that narrative is that we won't be heard, they won't notice our narrative, and if they don't notice our narrative, they'll piece together their own narrative about us, whether it's true or not. So the question we keep coming back to is, is that a moment when we can really afford to bore the audience? Let's make this more interesting as a podcast from Eat Big Fish. I'm Adam Morgan. Thank you very much to my editor, Ruth, and to my producer, Ross, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode featuring Russell Davis, the author of a new book called Do Interesting. Here's a little taster of Russell. Talk a little bit about pebbles and diamonds. Oh, so one of the, you'll know this yourself, towards the end of the book, of, of writing a book, someone says, but what is it all about? What do you actually mean? So I ended up writing something like, don't hunt for diamonds, it is get fascinated by pebbles. It's, it's like, don't look for interesting things, make things interesting. Pay attention to what's around you rather than waiting for a magical gift of creativity or ideas or inspiration. See you then.